Well, it is good to be back with you all today. Uh, thanks for voting for me. Because it'd be awkward if I was here and you didn't. All right, how do I make this thing a little bit taller? There we go. Um, well, I uh, want to thank those of you that have been uh, praying for, uh, for me and my family. Uh, we uh, finally, last night, iPads stick to metal stands. Uh, we, we signed a lease or a rental agreement last night uh, for an apartment, which has been a big, big prayer concern for us over the last few weeks. We found a, a place we're excited about. And then the reason I'm in town was because I had to meet with the presbytery, it's the, the regional grouping of churches in this area, and they had to give me the green light that I could come uh, and, and be your pastor, and I passed. So the only thing left is a cross-country move, and you know, who, who, that's not a big deal. Uh, so you could, um, if, you know, if, if, uh, if you would continue to pray for us, uh, our kids are definitely, the, the weight of moving is starting to hit them, uh, and so some of our kids have been a little uh, sad. Uh, God has been great in that our kids have gotten lots of time to hang out with friends, but that obviously makes uh, leaving a little bit harder for them. Uh, so we'd appreciate your prayers for them. Uh, so what I'm, uh, you know, here's my temptation. I was talking to Kate. Um, she's not here with me today. I was talking to her uh, on the way here. And, and it's just like, there's just so much I want to say. And I can't say it all. So, um, but that's okay, because I'm going to be around for a while. Uh, so we'll get, to, we'll get to it all eventually. Uh, I really am excited to be here with you. Really excited uh, to be here permanently with you uh, in a few weeks. Uh, Lord willing, um, the cross-country move goes smoothly. Uh, and so what we're going to do today is the last time I was here with you guys, uh, I preached from the book of Acts. I'm going to preach from the book of Acts again today. And then my thought is that when I'm here with you all in a few weeks, that we're going to jump into the beginning of the book of Acts and spend some time together reflecting on uh, what is the nature of the church? What, what is the church supposed to be? And that way you get to hear a little bit from me about how I think about the church and how I'm reflecting off of scripture. And that gives you a chance to get inside my head a little bit. But hopefully, uh, and, and this is really also my desire, is that this spurs conversation among all of us so that together we begin to think and pray about what does this next season in the life of Harbor City uh, look like? Uh, so that's the game plan. Uh, with that, let me read our passage today, which is uh, from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. And let me set the stage for you before I read it. So what's happening is that on one particular day, Peter and John have gone, uh, they're going on their way to the temple, and there's a man who's crippled, who can't walk, uh, and he calls out to them and says, hey, will you heal me? And they say, yes, we'll heal you, and he's healed. And they use that, the you know, crowd gathers, because a 40-year-old-plus man all of a sudden walking again is kind of a big deal. And so the crowd gathers around, and Peter and John take the opportunity to begin to uh, share the gospel and begin to preach to the crowd. Well, the religious leaders don't like that, so they arrest them. They keep them in jail overnight. They bring them before, they bring Peter and John before uh, the council the next day. Uh, and, and Peter and John once again begin to preach. Uh, and the scene ends with uh, Peter and John being threatened by the religious leaders. 
Uh, so the scene that we're picking up is what they do after they've left. So they've just left the, the council. The council's just threatened them. You better stop. Uh, and, and to give you context, like in the next chapter, the religious leaders are plotting to kill them. So this is not just a, hey, be nice if you stop. This is like real life-threatening uh, opposition here. Uh, and so what we're going to pick up on is how Peter and John and the other believers uh, begin to respond uh, in the face of the opposition. So this is uh, starting at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. God, sovereign, excuse me, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you give us this morning. Uh, We thank you for uh, the fact that you continue to speak to us through Scripture. And Lord, I thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here today uh, with this church um, and for the, the time to reflect together on uh, the idea of prayer and how important prayer is for the life of the church. Uh, so Father, be with us. Uh, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your spirit today as you speak to us through the sermon. Uh, may my words be your words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so it's no secret that... <clears throat> I knew this was going to happen. Can I get a glass of water or something, please? Um, It's no secret that uh, the last couple of years have been very tumultuous, right? We've had a number of different things that have been going on. There's a lot of uh, political polarization. There is a lot of division in families and churches that I know that have been divided on how to respond to the pandemic, whether to have a vaccine or not have a vaccine. Uh, A lot of the, thank you, Annette. A lot of the, um, uh, the issues surrounding uh, racial tensions and the questions that have emerged. Uh, and the reality is that the church uh, has had to struggle with how to respond to all of these questions. <clears throat> and that's not even anything before we say of all the things that were happening before, right? The, the, the uh, struggle with how does the church respond to the individualism of our culture? How do we respond to the consumerism of our culture? How do we have answers to the questions about uh, identity that our culture is asking? Uh, and, and so when we, when we see a text like this, it's easy for us to think, well, opposition meant murderous threats, and that's certainly what's happening. But we also need to understand that there was a worldview, there was an ideology that was at work in the religious leaders that was causing them to respond a certain way. And so really what's happening here is we're seeing the religious, we're seeing these believers respond, not just to the opposition and threats 
of the religious leaders in terms of, hey, we're going to kill you if you don't stop. But the worldview that was driving them to respond that way to, uh, to the believers. And so the question that, we, that this passage is helping us to ask is, how do we respond as a church that's seeking to bring this, this revolutionary message of the gospel to its culture? Uh, there's a pastor in New York City by the name of John Tyson. I bet some of you thought I was going to say Tim Keller. Uh, and I will quote Tim Keller later, but first I'm quoting T- John Tyson. Uh, John Tyson is a pastor of a church in uh, New York City called Church of the City. Uh, and I don't think this idea is, is his necessarily, but he, this is where I heard it from, uh, the idea of the redemptive edge. Have any of you heard of this concept of the redemptive edge? I had never heard of it until uh, John Tyson was speaking about it. And the idea of the redemptive edge is, uh, think of it like this. Scripture teaches us that uh, there is uh, two kingdoms that are in opposition to each other, right? There's the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of this world. Uh, And so the redemptive edge is that place where the kingdom of God is advancing on the kingdom of this world. The redemptive edge is that place where God's people are sharing the gospel and living as messengers of this kingdom. Uh, the, the, the church that is at, living at the redemptive edge is the church that's doing things like we talked about the last time I was here, discipleship, evangelism, service, worship. Uh, and so what we see here in the book of Acts is that the, the church here, this early formation of the church, is a church that is living at the redemptive edge. It's a church that, that is trying to advance this message of what God has done and is continuing to do in his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and what I have gathered from, you know, the his, what I know of the history of Harbor City, but also from all of the conversations that I've had with people here at the church, uh, is that Harbor City wants to, maybe, maybe you wouldn't phrase it this way, right? But Harbor City longs to be a church that continues to serve Jesus at the redemptive edge. That we want to continue to be a church that is serving Jesus and trying to find uh, compelling ways to share the story of Jesus and the message of the gospel uh, in, in ways that resonate with the Society of San Diego, uh, and to cultivate practices that help us to live as followers of Jesus. Uh, and that's what this passage is helping us to do. So now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three questions for this passage. We're going to ask three questions of this passage, all revolving around this idea of prayer, because what we see here is that prayer was the, 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 the uh, knee-jerk response of these believers in response to the threats that they were facing. Uh, So the three questions that we're going to ask are these. First of all, who do they pray to? So we're going to understand, like, how do they view God as they're praying to him? They give us some really important insights into that. Secondly, what do they ask for? Uh, And then finally, what response do they get? And I'm going to warn you now, the first point is really long, and the last two points will be not as long. Okay, so uh, to begin with, I want to uh, draw your memory to uh, the, the, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many of you have read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Read it to your kids or read it for yourself? Um, and if there are any kids that are watching from home or any kids out there, um, I want you to remember that scene where, so actually, let me set it up in case you haven't read the book. So the, the premise of the book is that these four children uh, go to their uncle's house in uh, the country of England, right? They're, they're out in the country in England. Uh, and they, they stumble upon, the youngest one of them, Lucy, stumbles upon a magic wardrobe that takes them into this other land called Narnia. Uh, so Lucy's the first one to go. She meets this fawn named Mr. Tumnus. She comes back, 
and she tells her brothers and sister about this amazing place that she's found. They don't believe her. Edmund next goes in after with Lucy, uh, following Lucy the next time, uh, and he comes across Jadis, the white witch. Uh, and the white witch uh, enchants him with uh, her Turkish delight, and which is a really gross dessert. If you've ever had it, it's disgusting. Uh, which just tells you C.S. Lewis's humor that he would take a really foul dessert and make that be the thing that causes Edmund to betray his family. So what happens is all of the kids come back, and uh, in the next scene, they all come back, and they're at the house of the beavers. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are explaining to them what's happened in Narnia. And, and as, as they're doing this explanation, they begin to talk to the children about Aslan. And this is what Lewis says about the way that that Edmund responds to Aslan, the name of Aslan, and how the other kids respond to the name of Aslan. And this is what he says. He said, the mention of Aslan gave Edmund a mysterious and horrible feeling, just as it gave the other children a mysterious and lovely feeling. So the next scene is that Edmund uh, leaves the family, uh, and he begins to, uh, he gets to the house of the White Witch, and as he's going there, he's He's talking, he's talking himself into going to the, house, the, the palace of the White Witch, and he stumbles upon a statue of a lion. And he thinks to himself, ah, she's already caught Aslan. And he begins to taunt the statue and almost act as if he's the one that did it, even though he had nothing to do with it. And then he takes up, I think it was a pencil, out of his pocket, and he draws a funny face on the lion. Um, so here's, here's the principle that I want us to understand as we move into this first point. What Edmund believed about Aslan led him to respond a certain way when he saw that statue. In the same way, what we believe about God will lead us to respond in a certain way when we are confronted with trial, problems, temptations, whatever. So what do the believers here believe about God? In a word, we see, what do they say? They call out and they say, sovereign Lord. Now, what does the word sovereign mean? The word sovereign means that God is in control of everything, okay? Now, they don't just say sovereign Lord and move on. They actually, if we look closely, they actually like unpack in a lot of ways what the word sovereign means for them. And if, and if I had, I could preach a whole sermon just on what they mean by sovereign Lord, but I won't, uh, at least not today. But let me just kind of touch on a few things before we settle in on one. In verse 24, uh, they say that God is the creator. He says, you made everything. In verse 25, they say that God is the one who spoke through scripture, right? So God is the one who reveals himself through his word. In verse 28, they say that God is the one who orders all the events of history. All of this is what they mean when they talk about God being sovereign. But the one that I want us to focus in on is that God is the God who redeems his people. And you know, it's not, it's not like there openly, but it's absolutely there, hidden in some of the words that they say. And this is where we see it in verses 27 and 28. Uh, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So now, how, where do we see the gospel in this? You see, they quote Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 has long been understood as this royal psalm that is talking about how the people are going to go against God's king, 
But in the spite of the fact that the people are going, to go against, are, go, are going to go against God's king, that he is still going to put the king on the throne, and that king is going to have an iron scepter to rule with mercy and justice. And what they're saying is that the fact that Pontius Pilate and Herod killed Jesus does not negate the fact that you are going to put Jesus on the throne. In fact, he's already put Jesus on the throne. Remember, Jesus has already gone, about, Jesus has already gone back up to heaven at this point. So central to their belief of what it means that God is sovereign is the fact that God has taken his son Jesus and that he led him to be crucified in order to save us from our sins, that he led him to be crucified in order to make all things right, but that, that his crucifixion, his death, is not the end of the story, that Jesus comes back from the dead and that his resurrection is the first step in a series of steps that happen that make Jesus the true king. Nothing is outside of his control. And so when they call out sovereign Lord, baked into this idea that they're praying is they're praying to a God that they know has already set the true king on his throne and that he is going to rule over all. He is ruling over all and will rule in, 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 in all fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. This is, this is, what, uh, this is their understanding when they pray and they say sovereign Lord. Now, following on to that, what they do is they turn it back on themselves. And they say, they, they acknowledge the suffering of Jesus, and then they start talking about their own suffering. And this is what they say in verse 29. Consider their threats. So now they're talking about the threats of Herod and Pilate and the religious leaders, uh, the threats against them. Because what's happened is they've taken all of their hatred and animosity towards Jesus, and now they're putting it on these Christians, these early believers, right? They're not called Christians yet. Uh, and this is what they say. Consider their threats. Enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness. So um, I let's put ourselves in the mind of Peter for a second. Uh, so you remember who Peter is. Peter, uh, one of arguably Jesus' closest, Jesus's closest friend. Uh, and at the moment where Jesus uh, is betrayed, at the moment of Jesus' greatest suffering, Peter's nowhere to be found. Uh, Peter, you know, uh, denies Jesus um, in, in, a, in a way, betrays Jesus' trust, uh, and is nowhere to be found at the time of the crucifixion. Consider what that must have done for Peter. Uh, consider that the way in which Peter must have reflected over the coming years on the suffering of Jesus. And with that, Let's read what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests upon you. I think what ha what's happening in Acts is that this is the beginning of Peter's thought process of what it means to suffer for Jesus. And that when we get to Peter in 1 Peter 4, and we get the formation of his thought, that he is in part reflecting back on this event. And, and, and part of the reason why I'll, I'll, I'll say later is because of this connection of the Spirit, um, that he's reflecting back on, on the events of Acts 4 uh, and he's teaching us something really important about the nature 
of opposition and the nature of testing. Tim Keller, uh, there he is. Tim Keller uh, had a really helpful quote that I read a bunch of years ago about this passage when he says this. He says, "The, the believers here do not simply ask for boldness. They actually heal themselves of their fear by meditating on the attribute of God most antithetical to their fear, his sovereignty. Then he goes on to say this. He says, we are to heal ourselves by praying God's specific attributes into ourselves. So let's bring all this together. Let's apply all of this before we move on to the next point. So, so here's what we're seeing, right? What we're seeing is that, that they're getting these threats and they're simultaneously doing two things. They are first reflecting on Jesus and the nature of his suffering. And then they're reflecting on themselves and their connection to Jesus' suffering. And then their response is to pray to their God. And in their prayer, what they do is they zero in on God's sovereignty because they see God's sovereignty as the attribute of God that's going to help them manage the threat. Because let's face it, when you're being threatened, it's really tempting and really easy to step back. Uh, It's really tempting and really easy not to continue to press forward. It's really easy and tempting to be able to say, that's the redemptive edge, and I'm going to stand over here at the redemptive kind of back of the edge, right? But that's not what they do. They pray. So I I mentioned to you guys earlier that... um, that, that God graciously provided us with a house. Well, when I was writing the sermon, that hadn't happened yet. Uh, and so uh, I remember it was you know, early in the week, and I was working on this particular part of the sermon. And, and I remember Holy Spirit just being like, all right, Omar, time for a dose of your own medicine here. And I started thinking, you know what? I've, I've become very anxious about the fact that we haven't found a house. I mean, I'm about to like boxes are starting to appear all over our house, right? And, uh, and we're already starting to have all of these goodbye things happening. And the reality of moving here is, you know, becoming uh, uh, more pressing and more urgent and, and sooner and sooner. And we need a house. <clears throat> and for a good chunk of the time, my wife and I handled that pretty well. But there were certainly moments where we were filled with anxiety. And on this particular, the, the day that I was working on this part of the sermon was a day when I was filled with a lot of anxiety about this. Uh, and it was in that moment that, that uh, the words, the, God is a shelter for his people, kind of came into my thought. Um, and, and immediately, I started thinking about, all of these images came to mind of how God says, I'm a shelter, how the Lord provided uh, shelter for Noah in the flood, how he provided shelter for Elijah when Jezebel wanted uh, to kill him, how he provided, how he said, when Jesus sent out the 72, he says, you're going to go into the cities, you're going to go into these towns, and you're going to find shelter. And if you don't leave, you know, kick the sand off your feet and leave. And then uh, even how Jesus says, hey, he's going to heaven, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And, And then I started thinking of all of the other times that God has provided a house when we've moved. Uh, and I started just reflecting and praying and kind of praying back into my heart the reality that our God provides shelter for his people. Uh, and it's easy to spiritualize that, right? But like, I actually, we need a roof. Uh, and God provides that. Uh, so what does that look like for us today? Um, to, to pray God's attributes into our heart. Well, I was actually having a conversation with, uh, with uh, somebody this week. 
uh, about this, where, where she was commenting to me that she's got a long list of God's attributes that she regularly goes back to uh, in order to help prompt her prayer. Uh, but, but think of it like this. Let, uh, think back over the last week or two weeks of your life. Uh, at what point have you been tempted? At what point have you been filled with fear? At what point um, has, has something come that has caused you to, um, to, to move away from God in some way, shape, or form, or the temptation for that? Um, what attribute of God, what, what do we know is true about the Lord and about Jesus and about his spirit that we pray into our heart in order to help us to continue to follow him? So, so if we're filled with fear, we remember God's words, do not be afraid. Right? If, we are, if we are tempted towards pride or arrogance, we remember Psalm 138. God, God humbles the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, if, if we're filled with anxiety, remember Paul's words from Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, present your requests for God because he cares for you. Now, you might be like, that's all fine and good, Omar. That's great. I don't, I don't know the Bible as well as you do. I don't have a seminary degree. Um, so I can't necessarily call up all of these things that you're talking about. Okay. Um, start with Psalm 1. Uh, start with Psalm 1 and read Psalm 1 and just begin to pray over what the psalm is teaching you. And I promise you that by the time that you get to Psalm 150, you're going to have a lot of God's character baked into your soul. Uh, this is what we do as Christians. We, we, we reflect back in prayer, and one aspect of prayer, this is not the sum total of prayer, but one aspect of prayer is that we pray God's attributes into our hearts. We remind ourselves of who God is uh, in order to help us uh, be rooted and established in him so we can follow him. Okay, so the, so the church at the Redemptive Edge is a church that prays uh, and reflects on the attributes of God praying them into our heart so that we can ask for God's power and presence. And that's what we're going to see next, asking for God's power and presence. So what do they ask for? They say, God, look at what's happening. And then, very interestingly, this is what they say. Um, they say, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Now, I want you to, I want you to pin that word boldness. We're going to come back to that word in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, grant your servant success to continue to speak, to your, speak your word with boldness. Then they go on to say this. Will you, um, hold on a second, let me find it. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Uh, in essence, they say, give us your presence, be with us, and then through us, give us power to perform miracles now, why would on earth would they ask for that? Well, I don't know about you. We're Presbyterians. We don't, miracles make us uncomfortable, okay? Um, two reasons why. At least two reasons why. Uh, so first of all, miracles were always meant to authenticate the, the, the prophet or the, or the spokesperson, right? So, so if I say, thus saith the Lord, and then I perform a miracle, that miracle says, you better pay attention, right? So, so for example... Uh, Peter and John walk into the temple, lame man, walk. The guy starts walking. What happens? Everybody starts paying attention, right? Because the miracle authenticates the speaker. 
That's the first reason. But the second reason is that miracles were supposed to be little signposts, little flashes of what Jesus is doing in the world, of the new heavens and the new earth, of what God is doing to restore all things, right? So a lame man walking reminds us that one day, all those who can't walk will walk. Blind people seeing reminds us that one day we will all see. Uh, a, A person that can't speak using their words reminds us that one day everyone will sing, everyone will speak. Uh, I think of, uh, you know, I've got my, uh, 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 my grandmother who, who's, whose mind is far gone. Uh, and I long for the day when she'll remember me, right? And remember my kids. That's the new heavens and the new earth, right? That's the promise. And so these miracles authenticate, but they also demonstrate. And what happens is that they're saying, Lord, give us your presence and give us your power. Give us your presence and give us your power so that we will be able to be bold in our witness. Notice what they don't ask for. They do not ask for God to make it stop. Now, can pause, because I don't want you to misunderstand me, okay? I am not saying, so please do not hear me say that it is wrong to ask God to bring you out of trial. I am not saying that. That is, we have so many Psalms. We have the example of Jesus himself in the garden saying, Lord, please let this cup pass from me. It is not wrong to ask the Lord to deliver you from trial, okay? That's just what these Christians in this particular situation don't do that, and there's a reason for it. Um, and so with that, let me just say this. It could be really, it could be, it could be really easy for, for us to, for, you know, for me to say they don't ask God to deliver them and, and to misapply that in a way that causes us to stay in abusive situations or dangerous situations uh, when God would not be pleased with that at all. And so let me just say like right now, like if you are in or if you know someone and you're providing counsel for someone who is in an abusive situation, we cannot take this passage and apply this passage in a way that says it is wrong to to get out of the abusive situation. Far from it, far from it. And if if you are in a situation that is abusive or you know someone that's in a situation that's abusive uh, and and you need help, let us put put you in touch with resources that can help you in that. But please do not take this passage to mean that it is wrong to get out of those types of situations. So that's just the little sidebar so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying when I emphasize they don't ask God to get them out of it. They ask for, they ask for boldness, they ask for presence and power to be able to, uh, to continue forward. Now, what have we seen so far before our last point? The church at the redemptive edge is a church that prays God's attributes into its heart It asks for God's power and presence so that it can be faithful uh, in uh, in serving him, all right? So this is the response that they get. Listen to this. This is insane. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, it's really tempting, isn't it, to read that and be like, okay, and move on. Like, imagine right now the earth shaking in this room 
which we're in California, so I guess technically that could happen. So as a Floridian by way of Boston, that's a little freaky, but that's okay. Um, but imagine the, the room shaking and a visible manifestation of God's spirit showing up. Sit with that. That's what happened. And so from that, God answers their prayers, and from that, they move out, and they, begin to con- they continue to do the very thing that, that, uh, that they had been doing all along. Um, I was listening to a podcast this past week, and this, this guy said, hard soil becomes holy ground when the presence of God shows up. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly what's happening in this passage. That's what's happening here. The, the hard soil of this threat and opposition and is, is becoming this sacred space because God's spirit is showing up. The gospel is absolutely that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have, uh, we have a new identity. We are made right with him. That is 100% true, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that the gospel is also through faith in Jesus Christ, we are given God's spirit. So, so listen to this. If we pray, and we should, when we pray, let me put it this way, when we pray for God's presence and God's power, if you are a Christian, that prayer has already been answered yes. You believe that? That prayer has already been answered yes because God's spirit is dwelling inside of us. Do you know what God's Spirit did? God's Spirit is the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection power, life over death power is inside you and I if we confess a faith in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of power and presence that we have. And, and, and so for us, the fact that the Spirit shows up in this passage, Pentecost already happened. Spirit's already been poured out. But the fact that the Spirit shows up again is meant to underline this reality for us. Now, I asked you to pin the word boldness, and with this, I'm going to end. I asked you to pin the word boldness. All right, let's unpin that for a second. The word boldness shows up five times in the book of Acts. The first time it shows up is in Acts chapter 2, where Peter says, uh, I can boldly tell you, and he's like preaching the gospel, he's talking to them about Jesus. Like, I can say these things to you with confidence is how it's translated in most versions of the Bible. But the word is, is, is the same word for boldness. The next three occurrences of that word all happen in this chapter. Uh, the first one is earlier in the chapter when, um, when the Sanhedrin note that Peter and John have been speaking with boldness. The next one is the prayer that we just looked at when they say, Lord, give us boldness to continue to preach. The third occurrence is when the Spirit shows up and it says that they were continuing to speak with boldness. So, and listen, interestingly, every single, um, every single uh, occurrence of the word boldness in the book of Acts is directly connected to the communication of God's word. Every single one of them. Uh, do you know where the last one is? the very last verse of the book of Acts. Let me read it for you. So the context is that, that Paul is in prison, okay? Uh, and this is what we read. 
Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I don't think that's a mistake. In fact, I'm convinced that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, wants us to see that word there at the end of the book. And he wants us to go back to that prayer and that scene in that room where the spirit comes down and, the, and, and God says, yes, I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to give you boldness. And that we are meant to see that what happens throughout the rest of the book is God continuing to answer that prayer for his people as they're seeking to live at the redemptive edge, as they're seeking to, to go out and share the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, as they're seeking to live faithfully, to plant churches, to heal people, to do good, to, 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 to care for the needs of the poor, all these things that you see the church doing in the book of Acts, that it all flows out of this work of the Spirit in their lives. And, that, and so that really what we see at the end of the book of Acts is that God has been answering their prayer all along. I'm really excited to be your pastor. I'm, I'm anxious to be here uh, and, and begin uh, to do life uh, and church with you all. Um, I am not so arrogant as to think that we can do this without prayer. Uh, in fact, we don't, I don't dare do this without prayer. And so you need to know, I've already started praying for you. I've already started praying for this church. Uh, those of you that know by name, I'm trying to pray for it by name. Those of you that I don't know by name, I'm just praying generally. But hopefully I'll, I, I will, and hopefully I will get to know all of your names and I will be praying for all of you by name. I will commit to that before you. Um, but here's the reality. Like whatever the Lord has in store for us as a church, prayer is the foundation of it. Uh, and so what that means is that part of what we get to figure out together is how is the Lord calling us to be a church that prays together over this next season? Now, hear me, I'm not presuming that prayer hasn't already been happening. I don't presume that for a second. Um, but I want you to know that as, uh, as we arrive, that one of the things that we are really anxious to do, and I don't mean that anxious in the bad way, I mean like excited to do, let me put it that way. One of the things that we're really excited to do is to figure out how is Jesus calling us to pray together for whatever it is that he has in store for us? Because I believe that Jesus wants us, he wants all of his churches, but he wants Harbor City as one expression of his church here in San Diego to faithfully follow him in the redemptive edge as we're continuing to seek and serve this community and communicate this good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. I hope that gets you excited. So let me tell you something about myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, let me tell you something. You probably, I probably should have said this to you before. I like interaction. Uh, so an amen, a yes, something. I like it. All right. Um, and I'm not just saying that to get a, 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 an emotive response from you. Just, just so you know, like, that's okay. Um, all right. So uh, truthfully, though, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited uh, to, be, to be here. Uh, and I'm excited to see what Jesus will do uh, in and through us. Uh, in the years to come. Uh, and so with that, let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, Lord Jesus Christ, spirit of power, triune God, um, we, we long to see 
your presence and feel your power in fresh ways. Uh, we long to see you work in and through us. Uh, Father, we long to see uh, men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ. We long to see uh, the injustices of San Diego and our world uh, to be made right. We long uh, to, to see uh, boys and girls, uh, teenagers, men and women discipled to follow Jesus. Uh, and none of that happens without your spirit at work. And so, Lord, we pray with the believers uh, here in this passage that you would grant us your spirit and provide us with boldness uh, to do the things that you have called us to do, the things that we don't even know what they are yet, but we trust because you are at work that you will do in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.